Well, it seems like a bit of an understatement to say that God is the best storyteller, the best story writer and the best storyteller. But I say it because I really want to press that point as we go over our text this morning. You can go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3 as we're continuing with the story of Moses and the people of Israel currently enslaved to the Egyptians. And we're picking up today in the middle of the discourse at the burning bush between Moses and the Lord. And actually, if you haven't noticed this, I think I've read it before and not noticed it, but the entirety of chapter 3 all the way to verse 17 of chapter 4 is all happening at the burning bush. That's all the same conversation that begins in chapter 3. So I want to go back in a moment and and I'll start at the beginning of chapter 3, though we've already covered that, just we'll read through that for context. But I want to give a sense before we do that, that we're really standing on the precipice, as it were, of the, the greatest redemptive story on that side of the cross before Christ. And we know that because this story represents the whole story that's about to unfold in the coming weeks, in the coming chapters of Exodus. It represents the new covenant deliverance from the bondage of slavery to sin by the blood of Christ. That's the picture that it's giving us. It's the most oft-remembered and repeated event in the Old Testament. You see it over and over and over, especially in the Psalms, how they continually remember the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal. We're right on the threshold of it here. As the Lord is preparing Moses, he's telling him what to do, he's telling him what to say, and he's about to send him. And you just get the sense that you're sort of standing at the edge of this cliff with Moses, and we're just observing him. And I want to take just a second and look back to see what's happened up to this point. And then after this week, then we'll jump off the cliff and see what happens next. So the current situation... Maybe this is repetitious, but, but just indulge me. So at the beginning of Exodus, we saw Jacob and his descendants. They come to Egypt with a total of 70 people. They multiplied. And they grew exceedingly strong. Then a new king, a new pharaoh arose that didn't know Joseph. He feared the people of Israel, put them to forced labor, afflicted them with heavy burdens, and made them work ruthlessly as slaves. And then he attempts to exterminate all the male Hebrew children, first by the midwives, and then by throwing them in the Nile. But Moses, the Lord preserves Moses. He makes it through due to the faith of his parents and the sovereignty of his God. And for 40 years, he's instructed on all the ways of Egypt until he murders the Egyptian, attempting to take vengeance for his brethren. Then he's rejected by his people. Pharaoh seeks to put him to death. He flees to Midian in the desert where he rescues the daughters of Ruel at the well, takes one of them to be his wife. She bears him a son. And Moses stays there. He remains on the backside of the desert there in Midian for 40 years. And all the while, the people of Israel are continuing in slavery. And then it says that they cried out for rescue. So I just want you to think about that for a minute. 
that at this point, the people of Israel have been enslaved for 400 years. We don't really have a good conception of how long of a time frame that is. But it's 20 generations, approximately. A a better frame of reference to think about it is that America is only 246 years old. So almost half of that time. And as far as we know, for the entirety of that time, there was no prophecy or no vision from the Lord. The last that we know of it was, if you don't, you might count Joseph's dreams. If you don't count that, an actual appearance and vision from the Lord was Jacob, the days of the patriarchs. Apart from that, there had been no word from the Lord, but silence for 400 years. So at the beginning of chapter 3 here, we have Moses, who's approximately 80 years old. And the Lord appears to him at the burning bush in Mount Horeb. And that's where we're going to pick up. And this is quite a lot of verses, but I ask you to stand in honor of reading God's word. Beginning in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land To a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel, 
shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech, of slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take your staff, <clears throat> take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. And that even as we consider there were such long periods of silence from you in the course of redemptive history that we have a living and active word written and transcribed for us that still speaks. And we wish to hear from you this morning. Would you come and minister your word to our hearts and speak to us, each person, the thing from you and from this text that is needful. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. That was a long section of text, but let's try to make our way through it. So, <clears throat> first, we need to consider the man that Moses had become. Because if you're like me, then you read this, and at first glance you think, uh, okay, that it's, it's, he seems a little, uh, a little wimpy, a little like, oh, uh, he's just 
at the end, he's just complaining and begging the Lord not to send him. You know, he seems like maybe a little bit of a small man, but when you look back over the course of his life, it's, that's really not the case. He was already, in some ways, a titan. He was learned and instructed in all the ways of Egypt. Doubtless, he had some leadership skills and experience in that time. He was a man of strength and courage. He fought and killed the Egyptian. He was a man of valor. He went and he saved those women at the well, standing up to the shepherds. At this point, he's both a husband and a father, and he's a shepherd. So he's no slouch, he's no deadbeat. But here, God's about to put him to the greater test to stretch and to strengthen him further. Note that God continually challenges his children beyond their current abilities that they might grow the more in wisdom and in stature. And that's what he's doing here with Moses. So Moses is given a threefold assignment from the Lord. Number one, the Lord says, come, I will send you to bring my people out of Egypt. Two, go and gather the elders and say to them. And then he says all these things, supposed to say all these things. And then number three, you and the elders go to the king of Egypt and say to him. So those are his three assignments. I took a pencil in my Bible and I marked verse 10 and verse 16, and drew a line between them because it says in verse 10, come, and then it says in verse 16, go. And we see that same pattern elsewhere in Scripture. If you see in Matthew 28, if you go there later and you read that account of the story of the resurrection, uh, that's what the angel says to the women at the tomb, come and see and then go and tell. So the Lord says that to Moses here. I think that's interesting. And Moses actually tried to go and tell before he'd come and seen earlier with the Egyptian situation. He, he He didn't know what he was doing and he didn't know what he was talking about and he took matters into his own hand and it came back to bite him. It didn't turn out well. So that's Moses' assignment and then there are a few things here that we know almost certainly that Moses feared that are in the back of his mind as the Lord's giving him these directives. We know that he must have feared Pharaoh. The previous Pharaoh had sought to kill him. And this Pharaoh was either the previous Pharaoh's son or his grandson. So so he's got that in his mind, certainly. And Pharaoh's entire life and his kingdom is built upon this arrangement of having the people of Israel as his slaves. It's not only a source of convenience, but it's a demonstration of power for him. It's his personal pride, a mark of pride to him. So certainly you would expect him to stubbornly refuse to relinquish it. And then on top of that, there's Pharaoh, and then he's got all the Egyptians. He knows the Egyptians. He knows what the Egyptians are like. He grew up with the Egyptians. 400 years, these people had the Israelites as their slaves. This is, in a sense, a generational wealth that the Egyptians had. It was their whole way of life for centuries Centuries, 20 generations, they hadn't known anything different than to have these Israelites as their slaves. So you would expect there to be some resistance to that change from them. 
And then on, on top of that, he fears the people of Israel. He remembers the, the, those two Israelites who had scorned and rejected him and said, who made you judge and ruler over us? So certainly he's got that in his mind, and he probably hadn't seen or spoken to any of his people in four decades. Sometimes we read this kind of sanitized, and it's helpful to get into the mind of the person. This is, he's a real person, and he has thoughts and feelings and struggles like we do. So he's got all those things rolling around in his head. And he gives the Lord five objections. I want to go over each of these objections. I think the first two objections are legitimate objections. Legitimate concerns that he has and that he's not necessarily, I don't think there's clear evidence to demonstrate that he's presenting those in unbelief or reluctance. But just inquiring of the Lord and seeking directive and information. So the first one that he says is, who, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It seemed, this seems to be asked in true humility. But maybe there were, it was perhaps motivated by some of that fear of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. As many times our motives are mixed and mingled. <clears throat> And the Lord tells him, I'll be, I'll be with you. He confirms his presence. And I love this. That I don't know if you've picked up on this. But the sign that the Lord gives him is a future sign. He says, you would expect the Lord to say, okay, I'm going to give you a sign so that you'll know what I'm saying to you is true. And Moses is like, okay, here we go. And he's like, the sign will be that after you do all these things, that you'll worship me on this mountain. <laughs> Uh, I think the Lord really uh, weaves his sense of humor into the text sometimes like that. So that was his first objection. Then his second one after that, he says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? I think this is still a legitimate objection. If you recall that the visions had long ceased, like I said, since the days of the patriarchs, 400 years. So either the people would be unbelieving that the Lord would do it, that the Lord had appeared, because it would have been the first time in such a long time, or possibly they had forgotten who he was altogether. Who, who is he? What, what's his name? Who sent you? And actually, Moses had asked, been asked a similar question before by his own people. Who made you judge and ruler over us? He wasn't equipped to give an answer in that time. So maybe he remembers that and he wants to be equipped and furnished with an answer to give if he receives the same question again. So the Lord tells him, the Lord tells him his name to give. He tells Moses what he's going to do for the people. He assures Moses that the people will listen to him. I don't know if you picked up on that in verse 18. They will listen to your voice. Then he assures Moses that Pharaoh will not listen, but the Lord will compel him to listen by his mighty deeds that he does. And then he assures Moses that he will give his people favor and they'll plunder the Egyptians. So Moses asks What's the, what's the name that I should tell them? And the, the Lord gives him all these other things. Doesn't the Lord just do that? Oftentimes, we ask him something and he goes above and beyond and gives more. 
And he does that with Moses here. So here we come to the third objection at the beginning of chapter 4. And I think this is where Moses goes awry. He says, because he's contradicting here the exact phrase that the Lord had just said to him. He says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, okay, maybe he's got in the back of his mind, like we said, that, that there hadn't been visions or there hadn't been appearances from the Lord in 400 years, so he's thinking they won't believe me. But the problem is you can't legitimize that objection because the Lord had just said in chapter 3, verse 18, they will listen to your voice. And Moses comes back and says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. That's pretty audacious to come and contradict the Lord to his face something that he had just said. Maybe it was a legitimate concern, but legitimate concerns can often be used as a cloak for hidden sin in the heart. And there's a fine line between humble faith and inquiry and just self-conscious, abject unbelief. There's also a fine line between a faith-filled boldness and a self confident presumption like we saw in the killing of the Egyptian before he was very self-confident and he went in and took matters into his own hands and he did that with the Egyptian and he killed him and now he's he's on the opposite end of that spectrum how often do we vacillate between two extremes before the Lord brings us onto the right path we start over here and then we swing back over here and then the Lord straightens us out and that's Surely what he's seeking to do to Moses here. And when the Lord answers him, he begins with the question. Now, when the Lord starts asking questions, it's appropriate to fear. Because he generally asks questions either to teach and demonstrate a point or to rebuke. Wasn't that what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden? Where are you? Who told you you were naked? It's the same thing that Jesus does to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. What manner of conversation is this that you're holding with each other? And the next thing he says after that is fools and slow of heart to believe. So it's always kind of a a red flag moment when the Lord starts asking a man questions. You know, there's probably some error in thinking that the Lord's seeking to correct but he's merciful to Moses here, and he gives him, he, he, he doesn't outright rebuke him. He, he's merciful, and he gives him three signs to authenticate his message. He gives him the staff that turns into a snake, throw it down on the ground. He gives him the hand, which turns leprous, hide it away in the cloak, and he gives him the Nile water that turns into blood, pour it out on the ground. And I think he's even stretching and growing Moses through the demonstration of the signs because it says that, the, that he throws down the staff and Moses flees from it. And then the Lord says, now pick it up by the tail and, and Moses does it. I think that's a, a small token of growth for Moses that he did that. He's got these fears, but then he's, he, he would have been familiar with snakes. 
He lived on the backside of the desert. So, and we know that when the Lord does miracles, it's, he always produces the most perfect and the strongest of the kind, like when Jesus turned the water into wine, and it was the best wine. So we know that with the snake, it was likely one of the most powerful and poisonous. But Moses reaches out anyway and grabs it by the tail. And can you imagine putting your hand inside your jacket and pulling it out and you've got leprosy all of a sudden. I mean, we don't have anything like leprosy so we, and we don't have any conception of what the stigma and the con- consequences of that would have been like. But it certainly would have been terrifying. So he's stretching Moses <clears throat> as he's giving him these signs. And I think there's a really great mystery here that the Lord had said previously, the people will believe. But then Moses objects, and the Lord gives him the signs. But it says that they saw the signs and they believed because of the signs. So there's a real mystery of God's sovereignty mingled into that. Because if Moses wouldn't have objected and just said, yeah, the Lord said they'll believe, so I'm going to go, then he wouldn't have had the signs. But the Lord said that it was because of the signs that they believed. So then objection number four, Moses says, I think at this point, he's getting desperate at this point. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. This was a worse objection than the last one. He's starting to grasp at straws here. Because maybe he was truly slow of speech and of tongue, or he had some sort of speech impediment, something that made him not eloquent, but it does say Stephen's account of Moses in Acts chapter 7 says that he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. So even if he wasn't eloquent, he was still mighty in his words. But he uses his ineloquence as an objection, as an excuse. I think that's interesting to meditate on, the fact that he was so powerful and mighty in his words, but he wasn't eloquent. A man might be fully furnished for a task in many ways, but still object by reason of his few weaknesses. And it's rare for a man to be so well equipped that he has no weaknesses, but he must not use them as an excuse. It's interesting to trace also through all the ways that it says, it says, that Christ would be, that there would come a prophet greater than Moses. And it's interesting to trace all the ways that Jesus was similar to Moses, but greater. Because it says also that Jesus was mighty in word and deed, but he didn't have the same in eloquence because it says that the people marveled at the grace and the glory of his speech. So the Lord begins here again answering him with the rhetorical questions and usually the rhetorical questions are more fearful and severe than the ones that he actually wants an answer to. Think about if you go to Job and (laughs) all the rhetorical questions that the Lord asked Job when he rebuked him from the whirlwind. Where were you when I did this? And where were you? And did you do this? And were you here then? 
But still, the Lord's showing him mercy, and he says, I'll be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what to say. And then we get to the last objection. He says, he's just desperate at this point. He's just begging the Lord. Like, he's run out of excuses. There's nothing else he can say. And he says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Please, just not me. I like to think that Moses was tracking with the Lord in the earlier part of the discourse at the beginning of chapter 3 up until verse 9 when the Lord's describing to him all these, what's going to happen. And he's going to come and deliver his people and he's going to bring them into this, out of slavery and into this land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses is just sitting there soaking it in and then it gets to verse 10 and he says, come, I will send you. And Moses you know, I don't know, maybe he had that internal where he was like, wait, wait, what? I mean, <laughs> I was like really excited about the deliverance and everything, but what, what do you mean me? And so he kind of brings that home here where he says, please, anyone but me, someone else. And it says, it, it's, it's sort of funny, but it's not really because it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he begins with a, with a question again. See, in all these, I think that's interesting. With these three that are illegitimate excuses, the Lord begins by answering him with questions. And so he, but he still is merciful to Moses despite his anger. That's fascinating to me. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, but then he gives him help still and gives him Aaron, his brother. Because he's not, he's after the, the long-term growth of Moses and the long-term deliverance of his people. He has something else in view besides Moses' failure just in this moment. He can, the Lord can see beyond that, the end from the beginning. And he saw that it would be better than, it would be better to give him help and to offer him mercy so that he could continue down this path and the trajectory that he had set for him. He saw that would be better and more sanctifying for Moses than if he had just taken it right there and said, never mind, I'll send somebody else, like you said. It's good that the Lord didn't answer that prayer of Moses. How many times do we ask prayers like that? And they're thankful that the Lord didn't answer them. <clears throat> so what is, what is all this, where am I going with this? What do we learn from this story? I think there are a lot of different angles you could take, a lot of different things that you could learn from the story. But one of the most conspicuous things about this story is seeing God's ways as a father with his people the way that he deals with his people. We have such a distorted conception of what, it, what, what a father is and what good fathers do because they're so rare. I think the concept of fatherhood tends to spark in us either something very negative or thoughts of warmth and tender affection and giving gifts faithful provision, protection, which it is, 
all those things. It is all those things. But one thing that, at least for me, and I think this would probably be a pretty safe generalization, is that when we think of good fathers, we don't tend to think of what marks them is being conspicuously active and involved in the lives of their children. And I'm not just talking about playing and having fun and being involved in that way. I mean with a vested interest in training them and teaching them and shaping them and instructing them so that they become excellent, they become well-formed, they become well-adjusted people. That's a different kind of love and a a greater depth than just, I'm going to get down on the ground and play with you, or I'm going to read you a book. This is formation as a person and overseeing that. A good father does that. And we see that so clearly in this story. That's how God is. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If a good earthly father does those things for his children, how much more does your Father in heaven oversee and show himself active and involved in discipling his children, his people? If the best earthly fathers are like that, how much more is our perfect heavenly father? This is a fundamental aspect of the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, we talk about the Lord's love and the world loves to talk about the love of God, but it's nothing more than a straight-up lie from the pit of hell that the world takes the love of God and twists it upside down to say that love and the love of God, love in general, really means accepting someone and letting them do what they want. That's exactly the opposite of the love of God. It's exactly the opposite because he's willing to sacrifice temporary pain and discomfort in order for long-term sanctification and holiness. And that's what he's doing here with Moses. Moses has all these objections, all these complaints, and the Lord's like, no, you're, you're still going to go. You're still going to go. We see it in the Psalms. It says, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. It says in Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. And this is one of my favorite things to meditate on. When the angel appears to Joseph in Matthew 1, and he gives Joseph the name of Jesus, he says of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What do you think that he means by that? Do you think of salvation in the way that not just that he saved you by forgiving your trespasses 
and by washing away the stain of your sin, but that he's actively and presently saving his people from their sins by delivering us from the bondage of it. He's saving us from all sorts of anger, grumbling, lying, stealing, cheating, lusting, greed, bitterness, jealousy, you name it. He's actively saving you from it. He's making you not like that. That's what a good father does. He's training, discipling. So it's God's way with his, uh, as a father with his people. We see that. And it's God's way as a husband with his bride. It says in Ephesians 5, we always, maybe not always, but frequently when we look at this passage, and rightly so, we think of it as a passage of, about husbands, how to love your wives, but enclosed in that passage is a truth about Christ, and that's actually what the whole passage is based on. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. He will at last have a perfect spotless bride because he has taken on himself the duty and the responsibility to make it so. It's not just you're out there and you better do what's right because God said and he died for you. No, he's superintending the formation of his church. And he will not fail at it. Do you think he's going to fail? Maybe you look out and see the state of the church today and you think, well, he's not doing a very good job, it doesn't seem. But he has a plan and he's not going to fail at it. And we see both of these demonstrated in this story. So there's, it, and it's, we see God's activity and involvement with his people at large, okay, in the deliverance of Israel. And, the, and like the passage I just read, the sanctification and holiness of the church. And we see his activity and involvement with his people as individuals. In the life of Moses, we see it. And in each of our lives. So he's doing, in this story that we read, and in our story, he's doing both things. He's actively involved in your life, and he's actively involved overall, over the whole course of history, over his church. And we see it in this story with Israel, over and over it talks about, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every time he says that, it's a remembrance of the covenant a remembrance of the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's fulfilling that covenant over the course of centuries. We're, sh we're so short-sighted, but we have such a gift in being able to see thousands of years transpire right here as the Lord gives us the big picture overview. So it's over the course of centuries that he's doing this, that he's fulfilling this covenant. And different generations and individuals play different parts in the overall story of God's covenant fulfillment. 
We see, we're about to see that as we get further into Exodus, the way that the different genera- there was a generation in the wilderness, then there was a generation that came into the land, and then there were generations later that conquered the land, and so on and so forth. But we see that, that individual involvement in Moses' life too. Maybe you read this story and you think, it, it looks on the surface as though this was an unforeseen, unforeseen speed bump in God's plan. God chose Moses, he was sending him, and he, but here we had to deal with Moses being slow, like why does he have to be so difficult? Why can't he just do what God says and we get on with the story? But it wasn't an unforeseen speed bump. It was deliberate and intentional. The Lord knew exactly how Moses would react. He knew his heart. He knew his mind. He knew his person. He knew all of his objections beforehand. He knew all the ways that Moses needed to grow, all of his weaknesses, all of his fears. And this whole thing was a part of God's plan to grow and sanctify Moses. See, he's doing both of these things at once. It's this huge cosmic covenant fulfillment with his people, but then he's working individually on Moses. He already showed Moses mercy in preserving his life. He gave him the blessing of a well-to-do upbringing. He got discipline and training on the backside of the desert. He got a wife, a children, a family, And now he has this opportunity for growth and holiness. He must become more competent in leadership, dispense with his self-preoccupation, learn to fear the Lord rightly instead of the people, the king of Egypt, shame and reproach, personal failure, and he must learn to believe the Lord and to take him at his word. But he's on a trajectory. He's always growing, always reforming. That's what the Lord's doing in the lives of his people who hear his voice. And do his will. He's always reforming us and changing us. I hope you see this. I hope you see this. That it's that it's it's life altering to see and understand that it's not just that the Lord has given us, He didn't just give His people during the course of history all these commands to be obeyed and then just sort of sit back and watch it unfold. And He doesn't do that for us either. He's Like I said, superintending. He's actively engaged and in charge and causing things to come to pass so that you might become more like Christ and that the church might become more perfect. And he will be successful at it. He will be successful in Moses' growth and Moses' change. We're going to see it. As we jump off this cliff, off this precipice, and we see how Moses rises up to the task. And we're going to see it in the people of Israel, how they grow and how they're changed. But it it takes so many years. God's not on our timetable. He's got the long-term view. He sees the end from the beginning. For, For the larger group, we're talking generations, hundreds, or even thousands of years until the Lord fulfills and accomplishes his purpose with his church, until at last, on the last day, he presents her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And for individuals, it it might take your whole lifetime. It will. It will take our whole lifetime. I was telling Heather 
<clears throat> earlier this week, I said, uh, you know, I look, I look back on 10 years ago, and I, I feel way more selfish now than I felt 10 years ago, which is funny because I know that I was way more selfish 10 years ago than I am now because the way that the Lord's grown me, but the Lord gives you that awareness. You become more aware of your sin, and he's constantly chiseling and shaping and refining through fire. But the end goal is that at the end of your life, you're the most like Christ. It's not all at once, not a flash in the pan, but a gradual growth in grace. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being really nostalgic because I'm looking back at my time here at Rivertown and, the, and as I prepare to leave the past nine years of my life. But haven't we seen the Lord be so active and involved in the continued growth and grace and the formation of this church? And how different and how more sanctified and how more rich and robust and faithful we've become over the years. And haven't you seen him in the same way active and involved in your own life? Do you ever pause and think back like that over the course of years? Your earlier years and how foolish and how ignorant you were and how far he's brought you. And consider how much further he will still bring you if you continue in faithfulness. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. We want to cooperate with him, right? And not frustrate his purposes. We do have some measure of control over what happens in the process, how difficult, it's hard to kick against the goads. And if we're responsive to his training and his correction, then we don't frustrate his purposes, but we cooperate with him. Are we going to be like the horse or the mule? Is too slow or too fast, or are we going to cooperate with him and yield to him? <clears throat> this is the last thing I'll say. Let us rather put aside all excuses and objections and run in the way of his commandments as we strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus as he himself conforms us to his very image. Let's pray. Father, what can we say to these things? We're so glad of heart and rejoice before you that you've given us in this word, in this holy book, a demonstration over and over to see from so many varying angles and different situations and different stories what you're like and the way that you are as a father and as a husband and as the God of the universe, a covenant-keeping God. We thank you that we've seen today in this text and surely as we reflect back on our own lives, your faithfulness. You're full of steadfast love and faithfulness towards your people. And we thank you for the place that you've brought us to and the place that you will bring us to in the future. May we be a people who do not raise objections and make excuses, but rise up in humility and in faith-filled obedience to 
everything that you command us and everything that you give us to do, that you might be glorified in our bodies and that you might be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.